Tidal flooding on this island uh, happens uh, definitely once a month. During normal tidal flooding events, which occur with a full moon down here, at this end of the block here, you could see the water up to my knees if we had an east wind, you know, and that would just be a normal occurrence. Any cars that are here during the, during the event uh, will get flooded, destroyed. The children can't get, get off the block in time for school. That was Dan Mundy, Jr., president of the Broad Channel Civic Association in Jamaica Bay, New York. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald, and today I want to invite you to my house. I live in the town of Hull, which is on a peninsula that stretches a couple of miles into Massachusetts Bay. It's a really nice place to live. We have a protected estuary where seabirds and turtles make nests. We have miles of beaches and rocky shorelines. I grew up in the city and I never dreamed I'd have a home in such a beautiful, wild place so close to the ocean. But these days, I've been eyeing the water with some suspicion because sea level rise could threaten not only my house in Hull, but the roads we use to get in and out, the protected spaces for wildlife, and eventually the entire town. UCS recently released a report called When Rising Seas Hit Home. I wanted to know more about how rising seas will hit my home and the homes of tens of millions of people living along our coastlines. So I asked the lead author of the report if we could chat. Erica Spanger Siegfried is a senior analyst in our climate and energy program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Her job is to research, write, and speak about climate change impacts and preparedness in the United States. She currently manages our analyses on the consequences of climate change with an emphasis on how much we need strong leadership and education so that we're not caught unprepared. Erica joined us to talk about the new report and how to stay motivated when all your research points to bad news. Erica, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So you've traveled around the country talking about climate change and rising seas. What's your sense of how most people imagine sea level rise happening? Most people think of the impacts and effects of sea level rise as being something that happens 100 years from now. Um, those that have you know, read about it in the news are thinking long term, you know, collapse of the ice sheets and major sea level rise. We try to communicate and make the connection with the sort of flooding that communities are seeing today and the fact that even the modest amounts of sea level rise we've already seen are causing disruptive flooding. So a question that I hear frequently is, if the sea rises by a few inches, even 10 inches, what's the big deal? My house is three feet above sea level, I'll be fine. Um, what's the easiest way to explain how sea level rise will unfold? Well, in our coastal communities, we tend to think of the sea and the high tide line as being pretty static. In New England, these communities have been in place for hundreds of years. Uh, people put roads where they put them and houses where they put them uh, because they were above the reach of the sea, except in the instance of major storms. Adding 10 inches of sea level rise, as some places have already seen, allows tides, just normal tides, tides with a supermoon, king tides, to reach much farther than they historically have onto those roadways, in some cases into those homes, 
And it's that kind of uh, you know, gradual increase of the reach of those extreme tides that's going to start to disrupt daily life and in some places is transforming you know, what people think about the livability of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So I live in a seaside town and am very aware of the tides, um, particularly when a storm hits, as you mentioned. If it's an astronomical high tide, we have significant flooding in certain areas of town. Often the roads are impassable for a few hours. Is this the beginning of chronic flooding or sea level rise? Absolutely. Your town of Hull, when it was founded, I don't know how many years ago, um, folks would not have put those roads where they were and would not have built those houses where they were if they were flooding on a regular basis. It's this additional sea level rise that's driving normal, extra high tides, but normal variability in the tides onto roads and into homes. You're one of the authors of a new UCS report, When Rising Seas Hit Home, Hard Choices Ahead for U.S. Coastal Communities. Tell me about the analysis and what you were looking at. We really wanted to get at that that in-between, that sort of near-term change that I was describing, setting aside storms, setting aside long-term permanent inundation. What can communities expect and when can they expect it? You know, this isn't an abstract question, right? Communities are finding themselves forced to make real investments today to cope with this. And the number of communities is going to grow exponentially in the coming decades. So we wanted to unpack that. We looked at the entire continental U.S. coast, East Gulf and West coasts, and we looked over the course of this century at different decades and different sea level rise amounts and were able to identify the specific communities that face what we're calling chronic inundation when they face it and we find hundreds. So to get at that question of chronic inundation, we we had to come up with a metric, a way of saying, when you reach this point, when you cross this threshold, your community is chronically inundated. You know, in the coast of the U.S., we've got everything from a 200-person remote Maryland community to Queens. All of those are considered communities by the U.S. Census Bureau, and that's the data that we used. So it's a very, very broad range, But in order to come up with something useful, we needed to land on a specific metric. We chose uh, flooding that occurs on average twice a month, so 26 times a year, and flooding that would inundate at least 10% of that community's area. We found that a lot of places, around 90, are already experiencing that kind of flooding, but they're remote, they're rural, small populations, they're sort of flying under the radar. We find that later this century, Queens, as I mentioned earlier, faces that kind of flooding. Obviously, an enormously disruptive kind of flooding. So it's a metric that uh, in some places, communities will have a higher tolerance for that flooding, and they'll live with it longer. In other places, they're going to invest heavily way before we reach that 10%. But we find that this is based on conversations with communities, based on talking with experts and consulting the literature. Um, We find this is a pretty sound metric that seems to apply to a lot of places. And how do you, you've got the metric, how do you know when the flooding is going to happen in a specific community? What are you looking at to figure that out? Yeah, so we used three different sea level rise scenarios. 
we focused on um, these are sea level rise scenarios developed for the National Climate Assessment. There's a high scenario, which projects six feet of sea level rise by end of century, an intermediate scenario, which projects four feet, and an intermediate low scenario, uh, which is kind of in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. If we kept warming to that level outlined in the Paris Agreement and sea level rise uh, accelerated much more slowly, we'd see this, this much lower level. Using those sea level rise scenarios, we then took digital elevation models. And, you know, without getting into the details, there's this high resolution data out there that shows elevation at the community level. And when you layer on top of that, the kind of increases that we were measuring, you can see this specific inundated area within each community, which we're making available in an online tool. And you can see when that area reaches 10% of the community's entire area. So depending on that sea level rise scenario, communities reach that threshold sooner uh, with the high, somewhat later with the intermediate, and a lot of places avoid this flooding altogether with the low scenario. So there is hope if we do something now. Yes, I would say that yes, with an asterisk, um, it depends a lot on what land-based ice does, and that's one of the great mysteries, really, in sea level rise science at this point. We don't understand how the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets are going are responding and going to respond to the warming we've already set in motion. So one very important and interesting part of the analysis was a socioeconomic vulnerability layer that points out communities and neighborhoods with predominantly low-income residents. How were you able to do that and what did the data show? We used a tool called the Socioeconomic Vulnerability Index, um, which the EPA has used. We used this in consultation with folks from the EPA and used the census data that this index is comprised of and overlaid the places they identify as having this high socioeconomic vulnerability. So high levels of, for example, low-income folks, elderly folks, folks with lower education level, um, there's a there's a racial component to it. Places that measure high on that index were layered with our flooding maps as well, and we were able to identify the places that, that overlap. And there's a, a good number of them, more than half, really not surprisingly. So these communities are going to have a very difficult time adapting to the situation, particularly if it's a poor community and there isn't money to put in place any mitigation strategies. We think the risk of that is high, too high to be ignored. You know, at the same time, it's important to note that communities that we've identified as socioeconomically vulnerable may also have, you know, really strong social ties and really strong social networks that enable them to add this level of resilience that other places might not have. So there's more to the story for sure. But yes, you know, on the face of it, these communities have typically been less able to bounce back in the wake of a disaster. And looking at the kind of flooding that we see coming, we feel that resources, you know, need to be marshaled, period. But when they are marshaled, need to especially be directed toward these socioeconomically vulnerable communities to give them the chance to respond. So I see a certain amount of this in 
Hull, Massachusetts, where I live. I think of it as the flood zone catch-22. You can't afford flood insurance, and your house is impossible to sell because it's in the flood zone. Are there safety nets in place for people who can't afford to move or can't afford the insurance? What do they do? There aren't really safety nets yet. The National Flood Insurance Program is in the throes of being overhauled, but it's not clear what the outcomes yet of that will be. There have been some, you know, important false starts so far. And, you know, really what you're talking about are buyout programs. And those have been uh, made available on a pretty limited basis at the state level in the wake of major storms. So we saw that in the wake of Sandy in New York in particular, also uh, somewhat in New Jersey. But certainly, and we're just we're just at the kind of uh, the, the edge of seeing this wave of communities where houses will become more difficult to sell. And the question of what do these folks do? You know, their greatest asset is their home is going to become a really vital one for us to deal with as a country. I don't think that states will be able to do it on their own. Certainly localities are unlikely to be able to do it on their own. So it's a question for the federal government as well. Have you seen actual whole communities yet that have been wiped out by rising seas? Wiped out implies a disaster rolled through, right? And the community wasn't able to recover. And there has been some of that in the wake of storms. Uh, We saw the buyout of an entire neighborhood on Staten Island in the wake of Sandy. With the kind of inundation we're talking about, it's much slower moving threat. And we're just seeing those on the front line of this decide enough is enough. So the most prominent example at this point is in Louisiana, where a tribe uh, living on Ile de Jean Charles uh, has decided that they need to go. Their island used to be five miles wide. It's now, you know, I think measured in hundreds of yards. And they have petitioned hard for federal funding to relocate as a community, and they got that. I believe it was last year. And so they're now in the process of figuring out how that works. Uh, Communities in Alaska have sought that same sort of support and have not gotten it. And you can imagine that there isn't going to be this kind of funding for lots of communities. This is kind of a unique case, this being a tribe, and we're really at the cusp of seeing some very challenging policy questions. So for the most part, people will be on their own figuring out, depending on what their town, state, or the federal government will give them for a buyout. You know, if we do this poorly, yes. We would like to see, and we we outline in our policy recommendations, we'd like to see a really thoughtful national discussion about this and a thoughtful set of policies put in place that would bring resources online for more community relocation. If we are in the course of, you know, several decades talking about entire neighborhoods needing to relocate, these are going to become very near-term practical questions. And folks are going to need some place to go that can potentially create stress and strain on the places that they would go. Businesses are potentially going to need to relocate. You know, are they scattered to the wind? Or is there a more thoughtful process that identifies places that could be developed, where there could be, you know, uh, sort of infilling? Can this be done in a more organized way in consultation with the community? We'll be back with the second half of our interview in a moment. Gut Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. 
You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. More at ucsusa.org podcast. If you like what you hear, please like, share, leave a comment for us. Oh, and stick around after the interview for our Sidelining Science segment with Shreya Durvasula. Now, let's get back to our interview. This past year in my town, we reinforced one of our seawalls. But that wall almost feels like a Band-Aid. The water still splashes over it, not as much as it did before. But how do we prepare? What are some of the solutions? So generally, the way that um, coastal adaptation is approached is through one of three main methods. There's the defensive bucket of actions, the kind that Hull has undertaken, so seawalls and levees, and in some cases, green infrastructure, like restoring wetlands so that you can reduce storm surge. Those are extremely appealing at the local level. They feel like a fix. They feel like they're going to keep people behind that defensive measure safe. But as you say, they they feel like a Band-Aid, and in many cases, they are a short-term fix. They have an expiration date, and that expiration date is shorter than people think given sea level rise. They also create problems elsewhere because they defer this energy of waves and cause erosion and a whole range of things. Another bucket is accommodation, where you learn to live with water. Um, for major cities, they're talking about building canals and, you know, turning over developed space into uh, public parkland. Elevating homes is a really straightforward way of accommodating and living with the water. Yes, we do a lot of that in Hull. Yeah. Houses on stilts mm-hmm. every year, more and more. More and more of them. It's an interesting look. Um, they, those things uh, cost money. Not everybody's going to be able to afford to elevate their home. Um, but certainly it is a way of getting things up and out of the way of the ocean. Boston's undertaken a lot of that sort of sensible stuff, like putting vital heating and cooling stuff off of the first floor. Exactly. Right. Fairly sensible. Um, and then the third one, which people have not been talking or thinking very much about, is retreat. Getting people and businesses and stuff out of the way of the coming high tide line. Which is very difficult. It's going to be enormously challenging. It really runs counter to human nature, really, in so many ways. So I know you're originally from Salem, Massachusetts. Did growing up there influence your interest in sea level rise and working in this field? Yes, certainly. I mean, I always felt very connected to the ocean. When I tried to live inland, it just didn't work. I had to get back. There's just something about it. I was actually really connected to the tides as a kid because I didn't realize this at the time, but at low tide, it smelled really, really strongly where I lived. And I thought that was just the natural smell of low tide. It turns out that it was horribly polluted in Salem Harbor, and this was like this kind of noxious odor. Um, but you always knew. You could always tell the tides by how it smelled outside. And yeah, when I began working in climate change, sea level rise was just something that I feel like I naturally got. The vulnerability, the exposure... Uh, you know, I've been checking the the, um, the sea level rise maps for years now, looking at the home I grew up in, which my parents still own, and checking the vulnerability, and so far it's in good shape, but my friends who bought a couple streets over need to get, get out before too long. So your job is somewhat bleak. You have to deal with heavy topics every day. You're doing analysis that shows the terrifying things that we have in store for us in the not-too-distant future. How do you balance the heaviness with family life? Everybody who's doing this kind of work, we all 
have been on this um, this ride where each year a piece of the science falls into place which shows us that our options and opportunities have narrowed further. It's hard. I mean, it, it definitely is. I remember going through a, a period of uh, grief maybe seven years ago when just a bunch of studies came online that made me realize the things I had hopes for that I had to kind of give up, you know, things like coral reefs. and So you do find yourself in this work, you know, someplace in the cycle of grief a lot of the time. That's not a place you can live, though, right? All the time, you're in, you're out. And, you know, I, I think that it would be bleak if I weren't able to come to work and feel like I was doing something useful. That, for, for I think most of us here, that would be the truly bleak life. This actually feels empowering, and I'm grateful to be able to do it. I do, especially since the election, I um, have <laughs> had a more joy motto. And my, my first approach is, is to bring more puppies into our household. Puppies are incredibly joyful. We share in that. <laughs> we share in the, the puppy love, my, for sure. My, family, my husband's wondering where this is going. The kids are totally on board, but how many puppies is it going to take to make it through? And then... My family's really, um, we love music, and it cannot be understated how valuable it is to turn on some good music. Have you heard the new Queens of the Stone Age? Have not. Oh, driving in this morning? Yeah, changed my whole day. What would be the best outcome for the analysis that you've just put out with a whole host of, of other scientists as well? This is actually kind of a tricky place for us to be. Uh, we've recognized for a long time now that if we were successful in really tuning people in to the, the risks along the coast, this near-term threat, that we would also be tuning in, hopefully, you know, the real estate industry and in the, the insurance industry and a whole bunch of banking, you know, a whole bunch of really influential entities where if they started to take this more seriously, it could mean real change. It could mean really hard change, though. So we want to reach lots of people that haven't been reached yet. But we also are, you know, we're concerned that if we're very successful in doing that, that the, you know, the change that that could contribute to is going to be hard along the coast. It's going to be hard for, for average folks. It is. I do want to mention one part of this project, which is a map that shows these areas that um, you can take a look at. And I think it's really powerful. I think when people dive in and see their community and see what's going to happen, I can imagine this mobilizing people in communities. Because the first thing you're going to do is zoom right into your hometown. And when you see what potentially is in store a few years down the road, I think it could be a powerful mobilizing tool. I hope so. And I think the real groundbreaking piece of this is that time dimension, the fact that it tells you when to expect it. There have been these tools where you can add sea level rise and see what might be inundated, but knowing when to expect that and, and really outlining for communities the response time that they have to work in. And the when is 15 years from now. Yeah. That's not far away. I think that's a powerful piece of it. If you are looking at a map and by the next century something is going to happen, 
it doesn't affect you as much. Mm-hmm. But seeing that 15 years from now, this is the area where we'll have flooding 26 times per year, that's extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it impossible to carry on in, in many places normal daily life. And I should add to the, the, the outcome that we want, we're not just interested in kind of shaking things up, we want to empower people. And as you were saying, being able to zoom in, uh, get a feel for what's in store for your community. As we outline in the report, you know, it's fairly near term for a lot of places. And even where it's longer term, the smaller levels of flooding that happen soon are going to be extremely disruptive. And we want people to see that coming and to be able to not simply try and respond at the local level, but also demand smarter policies at the state and federal level, including those emissions reductions. At this stage, us not being in the Paris Agreement, us pouring support behind the fossil fuel industry, puts us on track for, you know, perhaps the extreme scenario, a new one that NOAA outlined this year, which projects eight feet of sea level rise by the end of century. In this sort of Wild West approach to energy, we're increasing the uncertainty around where sea level rise will go. We're increasing the uncertainty, but we're also mobilizing many, many more people. So I'm optimistic that the fight will will prevail. I am too. I uh, yeah. Sometimes it's got to get worse before it gets a whole lot better. Yes, exactly. Thanks, Erica. Thank you. Now it's time for a short segment we call sidelining science, the latest news on how nothing matters anymore, especially not in Florida. Our correspondent Shreya Dervasala has the story. Colleen, I can't even with this one. The state of Florida is already notorious for underfunding its public schools. As of 2014, it ranked among the bottom 10 of all 50 states for spending per student. First, the good news. Florida is hiring a new position for every one of its school districts. Great, you might be thinking. More teachers, social workers. The bad news. The new position is a legally mandated officer who will hear residents' complaints about the teaching materials used in every single public school in the state. That's right. Governor Rick Scott looked at the public education crisis in his state and decided what students really need is a law to allow any and all Floridians to challenge the validity of teaching materials. Textbooks, movies, novels, websites, you name it. In practice, this means, well, do you hate the catcher in the rye? Like, really hate it? Do you wish Holden Caulfield had just shut his whiny mouth? Do you think kids shouldn't have to ever read about his stupid life? Do you have a child enrolled in Florida public schools? Doesn't matter. Anyone with an opinion on the catcher in the rye can now make excellent use of taxpayer money to challenge whether it should even be taught in school or anything else like evolution, or climate change, or Toni Morrison's beloved, the textbooks that address the Civil War and slavery. The affidavits filed in support of this bill specifically reference public school students being taught climate change and evolution. Once the new school year begins, it won't be long before the first challenges are heard. Rick Scott and the Florida legislature who dreamed this one up claim they're just allowing residents to have a greater say in children's education. Again, I can't even. This is just sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Thanks to senior analyst Erica Spanger-Siegfried. Our correspondent is Shreya Dervasala. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. 
Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Got Science, go to ucsusa.org slash podcast. Or even easier, you can pick us up on iTunes. And please, share us far and wide. Thanks, and see you next time.